Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast coming at you from Honey Creek State Park in Centerville, Iowa at the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever all team meeting and we have a, well, for lack of a better phrase, live studio audience today. <laughs> We've got uh, many of our uh, Quail Forever biologists and uh, staffers. We have Chad Lovett, Quail Forever editor, observing this particular episode. Uh, Because this episode is Quail Forever on the Rise. That's the theme of it. And we are going to be talking with uh, some of our biologists um, in the quail range as far west as Missouri and Arkansas, so not super far west, uh, to uh, as east as New Jersey and uh, you know pretty much all the way south through the um, um, you know all the way to the Gulf and then as far north as as Illinois so kind of the heart of the Bob White quail range with the exception of the Great Plains Um, we're not going to be talking about Texas Oklahoma Kansas those states but we're going to be talking a lot about the southeastern United States Bob White quail range and Chad loves taking photos right now. Uh, introducing uh, a voice you've heard on On The Wing podcast before. He's going to ride shotgun as my sidekick today, Mr. Tim Corin, Field Operations Director for Quail Forever. Welcome back, Tim. Thank you, Bob. Glad to be back. Appreciate having me again. I think folks um, remember the fun time we had in Seawee, <laughs> the last podcast you were on with, uh, with Kenny. So thanks for Thanks for joining for this conversation about Quail Forever in the Southeast. We also have uh, Jess McGuire uh, yep. on the org- on the org- staff of the organization for riding almost five months now, yep. right? Getting close. And um, and rounding out our uh, grand slam of quail experts is Ryan Diener, a guy I've known for you you were on the very first rooster road trip i believe i was i was the first stop you the first that's right because you were let's see you've you've been a biologist well we'll get into your background in a second i won't steal your thunder here but um just for folks that maybe didn't uh hear the the seaweed episode tim let's start just a little bit about your background and how you came to the organization and what you do yeah i grew up uh southern illinois chasing quail down fence rows and rabbit hunting as a kid and uh, just had a real strong passion for it. Graduated from Eastern Illinois University and um, just dove into the wildlife world and uh, was able to catch my dream and work in the field that I love. And uh, I came to Pheasants Forever actually, um, came to work for, for the organization back in 03 um, in Wisconsin as a habitat specialist. And over the years was just fortunate enough to, to work my way up the ladder, if you will. I was a, I was a <laughs> I was a habitat specialist, a regional wildlife biologist, a field rep, field manager, and now the director of field ops for Quail Forever. It's uh, it's going great. And what kind of bird dog do you have? I have a golden retriever, and that's a, not a quail and, dog. And, and and an English pointer. Okay, Chad. Chad Love is in the back approving. <laughs> Best of both worlds, you know. There's always there's pointer people and there's flusher people, and and I'm both. You're both. I'm both. You ride the fence both ways. I do. Well, we'll leave that at that. 
<laughs> uh, and, and I mentioned uh, we've got Jess McGuire, our southeastern U.S. coordinating biologist for Coil Forever. Yeah, hi. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Thanks for uh, having me. What? What? Now you told me you're from Massachusetts, and I'll be I honest, am. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have pegged that. <laughs> Go Bruins. <laughs> Go. There, you, we have the Boston Bruins and the Stanley Cup. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. A southern, uh, a southerner that's a hockey fan. Yes. It was. <laughs> yeah. It's been rough. <laughs> yeah. uh, so tell us about your background. Yeah, so, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts, showing horses, sheep, <laughs> the whole thing. And I went to Northeastern University and started doing a lot of work with Mass Wildlife and had a couple guys just take me out hunting, you know, didn't grow up in a hunting family. And I was hooked. And Who were the guys that took you out? Uh, Jim Cardoza. He was a turkey biologist up there. When you were studying, they kind of hey you want to go do this yeah and took me deer hunting and really? you know just kind of got me going on it and you know that mentorship way back then and has kind of forged the path forward um i got really into habitat management and you know getting other people on board you know and it that sent me to university of georgia to further get into that my dissertation focused on upland management and go for tortoise population health and management and it's kind of I stayed down there. I fell in love with the South and the habitat. You know, there's nothing like it. And you lived um, y you lived in Georgia and worked for the Georgia DNR for a long time. I did, yeah. I was, pr uh, you know, I started as a farm bill biologist at Georgia DNR, and then uh, the opportunity arose for me to become the RCW biologist, the red cockaded woodpecker, and I climbed trees with a chainsaw for a little while. And well, wait, wait, he did what? Yes. <laughs> so... Uh, in, uh, in the pine system, you know, we have a lot of younger pines due to people, you know, just cutting them down. We don't have a lot of age in longleaf pine. So to combat that and to get the RCW populations to increase, we have to put in artificial nests and trees. So <coughs> that requires climbing up 20 feet ladder. Oh, so I, I'm trying to keep up with all this, uh, the acronyms you're dropping yeah, yeah, on. Sorry. RCW. Is Red cockaded right? woodpecker. <laughs> yep. It's cool, I, I learned cool, a new cool, acronym today. Yeah, cool little bird yeah. in the longleaf pine, savannah, and, you know, quail. Be right there with them. And, yeah. and you talked about um, studying gorf gopher tortoises. There's a huge connection between gopher tortoises and there quail is. habitat, right? Yeah, so my predecessor, Reggie Thaxton, said one of the greatest things ever. It's like a little air raid shelter for quail, the gopher tortoise burrow. And, you know, everything works together, you know, commensal species and gopher tortoise burrows and it so all. So explain that air raid shelter. What, mm -hmm. So when quail feel danger, they dive into it. They can, yeah. Everything can go down in that gopher tortoise burrow and hide out and fire. You know, they'll go down in there. A lot of animals live right next to the gopher tortoise. I mean, snakes. We found skunks. You name it. It's hmm. been in one of those holes. So. The effort to, you know, a lot of people wonder how I made the transition in to working with quail, and it's, you know, it's a habitat approach. Mm -hmm. You know, you have some people that are really interested in conserving gopher tortoise, but at the same time, we can carry along some of the upland bird species into that approach and be more holistic and get everybody on board with, you know, preserving that ecosystem. Uh, is that, you know, these the gopher tortoise holes, is that um, um – from a habitat perspective, is it a critical, like, escape cover, or is it sort of a, you know, it's a nice to have, but it's not necessarily critical? 
Yeah, it's critical. Um, yeah. About 360 species have been documented, you know, vertebrates, invertebrates, and uh, you have some snake species that only survive on the landscape during certain times of year. You know, eastern indigo snake really relies on those gopher tortoise burrows, and hmm. uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's like the hub of the ground level of the pine savanna forests. You know, they're it a keystone species. So, is there a nonprofit like Gopher Tortoises Forever out there that's sort of <laughs> advocating for Gopher Tortoise habitat, or if if yeah. folks are really interested in the species, is Quail mm -hmm. Forever the best um, the best organization to create that habitat for? Well, you know, I'm uh, I'm biased. I'm biased now, you know, for Quail Forever. But you know, I have been on the board and worked a long time with the Gopher Tortoise Council. So there so is a Gopher there is. Tortoise yes, Council. there I is. I didn't know. You didn't know, but <laughs> you did. You know, you sensed. I'm a you sensed member, it. Actually, I just, That's uh, right. Yeah. So, you know, we've done a lot of work with schools, and you know, go Gopher Tortoise. It it's one of those. I think it's charismatic. They're cute, you know, and people. It's something they can hold on to if they're not familiar with the ecosystem and. People don't know they exist. You know, they've heard about quail and getting them to make that connection that everything works together and, you know, huh. school programs. We just had our gopher tortoise day, and next year the schools are going to have a quail day, so we're rolling. Yeah. yeah. All kinds of things I never <laughs> knew I needed yeah, to see? know, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to get you down there. you got you got to go see it, Bob. Honestly, you know, the first time I saw one of those turtles, something I don't think people understand if they don't, if they're not familiar with them is they're they they have the i mean they 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 can get very large and i think you know when i first heard about them you know i'd seen pictures of them i didn't really wrap my brain around how big they could get and, and i remember thinking you know the first thing that came to mind when we were talking about gopher tortoises was like a box turtle you mm -hmm. know like used to pick up when you were kids and kids still do you know and we were at the silver lake wildlife management area yes. in yeah. georgia and we round the corner and there was one right in the middle of the road, and I thought I was on Galapagos Island. Or something. <laughs> it was, See, I'm no, that's serious. What I was thinking. It was. I was, I was like, Darwin's tortoises. Are they like, that big? They're not that big, that's but they're not that big. But they're but they're big. They can I mean, be. They, they can get really big, and so mm -hmm. the so the burrow, I mean, can be a can be a sizable hole. So the whole covey mm -hmm. can fit down the burrow. They could, yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. So I get this picture of noodling for quail all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, you want to be careful. You get, We're not going there. <laughs> you get some snake species you don't want to mess with in those burrows. But, yeah, I I have been guilty of bailing out of the truck and diving into a bird to grab a tortoise for research or something. So, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to see that. <laughs> so I'll, I'll get us no. going for tortoise uh, tangent in a moment. But I'm fascinated by the How many states um, um, do um, – Gopher tortoises live in. So you know, there's a little population left in South Carolina, all the way over to Louisiana, Mississippi. You know, they're endangered um, west of the Mississippi. Okay. But um, you know, east there are candidate species for federal listing. So uh, the states have come together and are working really hard to count as many tortoises as they can and populations and see what populations are still intact enough to, you know, live in perpetuity if we start. Um, con you know conserving all this habitat and there's a huge effort of the states to you know put places into easements i mean you have dod on board a lot of partnerships are rolling in you know what's exciting about that is that the state is picking up some great quail habitat as well so you know conserving that habitat for gopher tortoises we're also pulling in so some awesome it, quail it's the exact same sort of pine savanna um, yeah so quail habitat that you envision of georgia it is, yeah. You'll often find 
Um, some of our remnant populations of tortoises are still on plantations, quail mm. plantations, just because they've maintained that quality of habitat on those um, places. And, you know, tortoises prefer well, well um, you know, drains, sandy soils. And, you know, you kind of have the other extreme where you find lots of quail, but where they meet in that middle, there's that, there's that sweet spot where you get both species. And mm. it, it's a really special thing when you find it. And so they're working hard to conserve it, and it's going to be a win for both. Cool. Yeah. Do you have old gopher tortoises in Arkansas, do you know? <laughs> no, we have alligator snapping turtles. They're a little bit more. Oh, fun. yeah, and they're good eating, too. Hey, hey, hey. You well, might not <laughs> want to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> I suppose that's different than the regular snapping turtle I'm thinking of, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah. You can eat the common or the, the soft shells, but you might you might end up in prison if you eat an alligator snapping <laughs> okay. turtle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, t um, I'm talking <laughs> Diener. I, I know Diener pretty well. So, Ryan Diener, uh, give us your background. Um, sure. So, I grew up in East Central Missouri, little little town of Marthasville. Uh, it's about an hour west of St. Louis. So, let's go Blues. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, those are fighting words now. That's right. That's right. We got a Stanley Cup battle happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, I grew up. You want to say no, something? No, you did. I was just going to say it's not going to be a battle. We're going to win in St. Louis. That's right. Oh, goodness, people. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I grew up right along the Missouri River, uh, right on the intersection of, like, where the North Missouri historic prairies were and the northern edge of the Ozarks. Um, really diverse landscape. Uh, little community there right in the heart of Missouri <coughs> wine country. And uh, went to the University of Missouri, got, a, got my bachelor's in fisheries and wildlife sciences, um, I was actually a, a wetlands and waterfowl guy all through school. And when I graduated, uh, had worked some summers up in North Dakota doing some waterfowl research. Uh, so I didn't know it at the time, but I was really more of a, a prairies and grassland guy. So I transitioned, uh, into that and, and got on with pheasants forever and quail forever started, moved all the way out to Northwest Kansas, which was a hard decision for a Missouri boy. Uh, stayed a couple years out there, worked on a lot of prairie chicken stuff, um, I was intrigued when I moved out there. It, it uh, some of the quail range maps show they're not being quail where I lived, and there were quail everywhere right. out there. So it was fantastic. Because that's where we first ran into her. We met right. each other uh, in Western Kansas. Yep, I was living in some dumpy old building on the edge of town, and <laughs> I, hey, <laughs> no judgment here. <laughs> There's a story behind that, but um, yeah, when we first met out there on the the first ever rooster road trip. Me and at the time I had my lab Remy. Um, we went hunting for a day there, and I showed you guys some of the other spots I'd found, and I think it turned out pretty good. Yep. Um, so I was out there for a couple of years and then moved back. Uh, we had a position open up in my home area there in Missouri. Uh, stayed there for a while, did a lot of, a lot of neat work on uh, native grazing and grassland and fire stuff. And uh, here about two years ago, moved down to Arkansas, and now I'm the state coordinator down here. And you were recently uh, recognized by the Arkansas Natural Resources Conservation Service. Yep. That, uh, that was an award that uh, my, my team there put me in for. Um, they put me in for it, and it, it had my name on it, but that was a team award through and through. Uh, all the stuff they read off was, was all the acres and accomplishments that the <coughs> team had done. So uh, I was real proud of them, and uh, I appreciated it. But that was definitely something for the whole the whole team there in Arkansas. We've not been on the ground very long, but they're lighting the world on fire. It it is amazing, um, and it 
you know, credit to the team, credit to your leadership, uh, you know, for the first, you know, 30, let's say 35 years of the organization, we really had very little footprint in Arkansas. And Diener moves to Arkansas and the whole world explodes, in, in, which is why you were recognized just a day ago as the organization's conservation warrior of the year. Thank you. So audience applause. Um, congratulations for um, really lighting Arkansas on fire in a good way yep. for, for quail habitat. Appreciate it. But, again, that's just something that couldn't happen, and it's not me. That's that's the whole crew of people down there, and, and the biologists are doing great work, and the partners make it real easy. Well, we will transition um, to kind of the theme of this particular episode, and that's working lands for wildlife with a focus on quail. So maybe I'll start with Tim. Explain yeah. <coughs> working lands for wildlife to us. Well, you know, on the last episode, we talked about this a little bit. Um, we were uh, we hadn't hired anybody for it yet, um, but we seized an opportunity um, with a request for proposals that came out from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. They had worked with uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service, um, had a large chunk of funding available for this program, and we saw it as a, a great opportunity to expand our staff in areas where, where we just didn't have boots on the ground um, offering technical assistance to landowners to do landscape scale quail habitat projects. And we were able to fill a lot of white space on the map with this opportunity. We wrote a grant, we were awarded uh, 15 positions total, actually 14 biologists, a program coordinator, which is Jess sitting here on the couch next to me. Um, and to date, we have hired those biologist positions in, I'm gonna do my best here. <laughs> We've hired those biologist positions in, um, in Georgia, South Carolina, New Jersey. I'm sorry, not South Carolina. We have one coming to North Carolina. New Jersey, we have another one coming in Ohio. We haven't hired yet, but it's about to be posted. But then Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, and I do I know. think by my yeah, we count, do have one in South Carolina. there's yeah. 18 of them uh, either on the ground or coming shortly. Oh, you're right. We do we do have there. one in South Carolina. It, we, we, it's the second position. I was thinking of the one we already have there with the, the co-op position with the foresters, yep. but you're right. That's a that, that's a lot of uh, activity happening in the quail range. It's oh, kind it's of broken fantastic. into two different initiatives, right? <clears throat> Absolutely. There's the Pine Savannah Initiative, Grassland Rangeland, and that's the the people on each side of me here. They these are our specialists that focus on the two, um, Diener and Jess. So uh, let's start with the um, the Pine Savannah Initiative. So this covers the states of Georgia, New Jersey. North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and Alabama. Yes. Uh, what's a pine savanna for folks that uh, maybe aren't familiar with it and explain a little bit about um, what the goal of this initiative is related to that ecosystem? Yeah, so, you know, the main goal is to, you know, get fire back on the ground. Um, you know, we kind of will joke around in the office, it's thinning and burning. You know, that that's the big thing that we're pushing to get back on the landscape um, so explain that thinning and thinning yeah. what? Thinning pine trees. Uh, you know, you need a lot of sunlight on the ground to produce the ground cover necessary. You know, for the legumes, grasses that produce the you know the the seeds, the bugs that quail need, and up other upland birds. And uh, you know, you, they haven't been uh, thinning as much lately. You know, due to economics and just uh, you know some of the different techniques. 
so we're we're out there and you know working lands for wildlife is crucial for us to have that conversation with the landowner and say look we know you're going to have to take a financial hit on this potentially um this is something you know you haven't been doing for a few generations you know it's kind of been been lost um that style of uh, forest management but um we're able to you know get in there with the landowner and show them what the potential of that property is and there's nothing better to get that call from a landowner saying, hey, you know, I finally have quail on my property or, you know, their neighbors had been doing it. So we still had some quail nearby. And, you know, it just took them a couple of years of just those changes and getting into these programs. You know, we're seeing pretty good response uh, from people. But, you know, you, you have to have a low basal area, which means, that you know, there's more space in between trees than, you know, a typical, you know, we could say tree farming operation. So we're trying to get people back to that um, nice landscape where, you know, you kind of picture pines spaced out and you see the bunch grasses coming high, wire grass down low, the grasses that will carry fire across the landscape, the beautiful spring fall flowers that are important for pollinators and quail. And, you know, just picture the sun kind of mm -hmm. twinkling down through the pines. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, you see the light on the ground and it's just... Really because with, without thinning, without mm -hmm. prescribed burning, it just yeah. becomes a jungle, right? It does. I mean, it just it does. The, there's so much <coughs> moisture, so mm -hmm. much uh, it just explodes. And then yep. you quail get essentially are choked out. They are. They, You know, you've got that oak encroachment and, you know, you've got um, just not a lot of space for them to move. They can't escape, hmm. you know, quickly. Uh, they can't move through. So you picture a little quail, you know, just hatched. They're you know itty bitty you need to get them to be able to move and find food and you know not be exposed and you, you said itty bitty how itty literally bitty. how small is a baby quail oh i don't know they're uh, size like of they're a bumblebee size, yeah size thumb, of a bumblebee right? yeah they're they're tiny they're like just little snacks they're running around so gopher tortoises don't eat them though right i don't think so okay <laughs> sounds good popcorn quail i know it it might little protein so uh, you know we we talked a uh, earlier episode with bill palmer and he talked about the importance of prescribed burning mm -hmm. like literally every two years yes yeah it's a commitment but, you know, that's we've we've got a lot of partnerships going and the burn councils are really getting out there and educating people and professionals, you know, and uh, cooperatives with landowners, just landowners teaching each other and helping each other out and, you know, getting them used to burning again. You know, it's daunting if all of a sudden you have a biologist come out and tell you, well, you need to start burning. And it's like, well, we haven't done that in 10 years. Mm -hmm. It's dangerous. Mm -hmm. I'm nervous about it. But, you know, we're putting resources out. Um, NRCS is really committed to getting fire on the ground. And, you know, they're investing a lot into these partnerships alongside with us. And uh, you have a lot of local partners and even national partners uh, getting on board and just getting people used to fire again. Because, you know, it's really a two-year <coughs> rotation. And then the next challenge is getting them to burn during the growing season, which, you know, it's getting hot, a little uncomfortable, but that's where we see the best response. Really? Why is that? Yeah, it just, you know, get knocks back a lot of invasive species okay. or, you know, it's just that, that timing is important to get the nutrients back and just knock back some stuff you don't want growing during that time. And so y you touched on this. Like you do a burn or you thin it out and you mm -hmm. get the basal area down, right? That's right. Yep. Percentage, so there's... Um, so there's more sunlight, more room for the quail. Mm -hmm. uh, 
they respond really quickly. You, you mentioned just a couple of years, a landowner does some work on their property, and yep. I mean, like two years all of a sudden they see quail back on the No, it, you know, it, it depends on landscape and what was already there and how aggressive they go into it, you know, and, you know, their neighbors are important too. And that's mm. why a lot of these initiatives are really focused on focal areas. Um, we're not just taking, you know, a shotgun approach on the landscape. We have, you know, certain counties are enrolled. They get priority first because, you know, uh, like example in Georgia or even South Carolina, the state agencies are focusing on public lands. So we kind of want to build on that and get those landowners involved to, you know, increase habitat connectivity, you know, and it, it increases hunting opportunity as well. But, um, you know, that's kind of important to get that response. So, you know, it always depends. You don't want to promise anything, but we have seen some good response. You mentioned you worked for the Georgia DNR for six years, and you I just did. touched on, on, on public lands. And I don't hear a lot of talk about public lands quail hunting mm-hmm. in you know, Georgia, Mississippi, in Alabama. Yeah. Are there opportunities, and is that something agencies down there are sensitive to and trying to um, sort yep. of change public perception? Absolutely. There's a, there's a huge effort to provide more opportunity on public lands because we know that that's the only way we're going to get the hunting, quail hunting culture back. And, you know, we're able to take people out with us um, on areas that's accessible to us. And there's a lot of money and a lot of dedication going into it and what's really cool and what really got me interested in quail forever and involved was the local chapter that southwest georgia chapters involvement on our wmas Mm. and the fact that you know here was a group of people that you know they they hunt on all sorts of different places for quail but you know they were really excited about um putting you know habitat on the ground a lot of times it's you know nearby them but that commitment to helping us achieve those quail goals, you know, mm-hmm. when I was with the state agency was really impressive to me. And I, I just really liked that model and how it worked. And, you know, we, the region's able to get a ton of work done and just hearing the response from hunters and, you know, they're just taking their dogs out and the dogs actually are finding things. And, you know, I'm not saying you're going to bag out or anything, mm-hmm. but, you know, you're going to enjoy your hunt. What what can you reasonably expect to flush on public land in, say, uh, Georgia or Alabama? Like, can you get a six-covey day? Is that reasonable? Depends on the time of year you're going mm-hmm. and uh, how much pressure it's seen. But, you know, we've I've gone to a couple public areas and, you know, let's just say we've been really satisfied with what we've flushed. <laughs> uh, oh, so you're saying you have short hairs. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, here we go. Oh, boy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a few covey here and there. Yeah. You know, it's uh, a lot of our hunters are just glad to have the opportunity to get back out there and, you know, flush some birds and not, you know, yeah. come um, up. Hey, Bob, just, just for people at home listening, could you, could you just – could you explain, you know, can, can they hop on a website or George DNR website and find out where those areas are if they're yeah. all quota draws, if there's walk-in? You yeah, know, so we get, yeah. We get asked all the time, and, and I think I, I love it down there. I think there's a lot of opportunity. And, and yep. Yeah, the hunting regs are online, uh, you know, georgiawildlife.com, and uh, hopefully I got that right. Oh, <laughs> they changed it recently. But, um, you know, the Bob White Quail Initiative has been crucial to getting that um, on the ground there in Georgia and you have the South Carolina initiative as well and you know it's a parallel program and um, the you know Florida Georgia coalition which is something I think you've talked about before on this Mm -hmm. podcast is what's helping drive a lot of that work Um, 
Yeah, those guys, are, you know, just a, last time we were on the start, we were talking about the Florida Georgia Quail Coalition and how it worked with chapters kicking in funds to a pool, and then we were using those for public land quail management work. Um, that Southwest Georgia chapter came to Pheasant Fest right after that last podcast, and they stroked a check for sixty thousand dollars. And now that's the, that's the Albany chapter. Right? Mm-hmm. It's yep. It's, 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 it's no, you didn't. No, we're not, we're it's not gonna Albany. Do. That's right. Ah. If you say it wrong, they'll throw you Sorry, out of town. Sorry, guys. Yep. Albany. <laughs> but no, I just wanted to say, you know, how much we appreciate the them. Year, they, they were, were. well, des- year. well deserved. And, yeah, and they walked in the door mm-hmm. and got their award and got the checkbook mm-hmm. out and. And give us another sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, and they're helping out with these biologist positions too. <coughs> they are. Yeah. And, that, yep. and that's uh, your commitment to Bo that as Henry well. is kind of the, the ringleader down there, right? <laughs> Tommy Grager's, Bo <laughs> yep. Henry, all those guys. Ross, yeah. yeah. Ross. Robert, you yeah. got a just a, a great, great example of volunteers Fan. doing mm-hmm. amazing things beyond just their own little community. Yep. Absolutely yep. fantastic. They're committed. Chapter. They are. They believe it. Um, is there? I know from a from a pine savannas perspective that we talk about loblolly pines, mm-hmm. we talk about longleaf Long. pines. Um, which are the the species that you really want to have on that landscape? So you know, longleaf pine was the you know tree of the pine savanna. You know, historically, and we've really lost a lot of longleaf um, across its range. It's really hard to find. You know, those really beautiful old stands of really huge longleaf. Um, that I was talking about earlier that the red cockaded woodpeckers really rely on. Um, but, you know, there's a huge initiative. And, again, Quail Forever, you know, their their new partnership with Longleaf Alliance, that was something that, you know, I think is, is going to be a great thing and just help us, you know, get get trees planted, but more importantly, get those trees managed. So, you know, we can get that, uh, the restoration moving forward and getting back, what we wanted to for you know quality quail habitat on the ground uh quail don't care about the pine tree they don't need you know as peter knows they grassland species but um just the way you manage that species of tree and you know longleaf pine when they're a little bit thinner their needle cast is a lot better than other pine species Hmm. which pulls that fire along um value long term on the landscape can be you know a good return for landowners so you know there's a lot that goes into it but yeah, longleaf is the big push right now for a lot of good reasons. Well, sure. s- switching from the pine savannas over to the grasslands, we will uh, transition the conversation to Ryan Diener and and the other piece of the working lands for wildlife, and that's the northern bobwhite in the grasslands. So we're moving from uh, east to west, and we're talking about states of. Um, let's see here. We've got. Well, I guess there's a couple eastern states in here. Virginia, Arkansas, Illinois, Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, Missouri, and Kentucky. And I know you can speak real specifically to, to Arkansas and Missouri as well. Um, sure. Tell us a little bit about the Grasslands Initiative for the Working Lands Program. Sure. So just to set up a little background on, on this initiative and, and those, you know, what we would consider eastern states for grasslands work, um, Quail in eastern grasslands is a whole different animal than working on quail habitat in western or, you know, the Great Plains or the rangeland states. You know, those states have all their nati- a lot of native range still, and with proper grazing and maybe some fire and some luck with some t- rain, we're going to have birds. But once we get, you know, east into the tall grass prairie region and, you know, east from there even into some of the interior plateaus, which would be, you know, Kentucky, Indiana, the, Virginia, those types of places, um, most of our grasslands have been converted over to uh, non-native pasture, hmm. so it's it's uh, 
pasture land now that's non-native grasses. It grows a lot thicker. Uh, most of the time they're growing in more or less monoculture stands. They can get grazed a lot harder. Um, and it's just not valuable <coughs> habitat for quail or much of anything else. So this uh, Bob White Quail Grasslands Initiative is looking at doing some work to uh, increase native grazing um, in the eastern grasslands. Uh, so we do a lot of conversion on some areas, whether it's people want to convert some of that non-native pasture back to native grasses for grazing, or if we're taking uh, some cropland out and putting that back to native grasses to start grazing it. And we do do some silvopasture work um, with that too, which is close or similar to you know setting up a pine savanna uh, mm-hmm. and then start grazing that. So we can we can do it all together at the same time. Um, but it's just something that the eastern grasslands, we've lost that culture of native grazing over here. Hmm. It's been a long time since we've had that. Uh, you know, really, we started wholesale converting over to non-native grasses in the, like, 1940s and 50s. Um, so the people that are working the land now have no recollection of, of native grazing native species in these states. So when we were talking with Jess, she, she brought up thinning and burning right away. You're running right to to grazing, yeah, but did burning um, is burn, is there a burning component in the grasslands uh, management toolbox? Absolutely. So we always want when we're talking about quail, we always want to try to to use fire, and really, you know, in uh, most of Arkansas, our burn ro- our burn regime was anywhere from two to five years, mm. uh, depending, um, and it kind of can be that that way or maybe a little bit higher you know as you move east into kentucky and virginia but fire is definitely going to help um with any native grazing system um but we can grazing is the key well so we can manage it with grazing Mm -hmm. we can do better if we do grazing and burning Hmm. i remember uh we had a biologist in south dakota that ben begulke that he would he would talk about the importance of cows to pheasants you know just having that um you know constant grazing on the landscape to re- sort of regenerate the the grassland health it sounds like you're talking about very similar sort of symbiosis between quail and uh, having cows in the landscape it is so we're still in the eastern u.s we still get a ton of rainfall and like jessica was saying with the pine savannah stuff without fire it gets really thick you get a lot of brush and stuff growing in there uh, grassland is just the same way, just on a smaller scale without, without grazing, um, or without fire, but even grazing again, we can manage it with grazing, but it'd be better with fire, but that grazing can help keep our native grasses, which when you put 60 plus inches of rainfall on it gets really thick, really fast in a single year. Hmm. So if you don't graze it, it doesn't take but a year or two in what should be a good habitat of native grasses and wildflowers quickly becomes very, very thick and not much better than that fescue field that's right next door to it. So if we graze it, we can keep those grasses set back a little bit, keep some bare ground, and it absolutely is a great management tool for quail in the east. So I, I want to hear the, uh, the Arkansas story. You know, you've been, you've been there for two years. Yep, just about. And, you know, maybe for the longest time, you know, we had less than 100 members in the state of Arkansas. And then all of a sudden, there's chapters popping up. There's, uh, you know, all these biologists getting, you know, jobs in NRCS offices. And there's, it seems like there is a latent uh, 
demand, a pent-up demand for quail in the state of Arkansas, and you figured out how to sort of tap that keg. Uh, <laughs> you like that analogy? Yeah. What what what, what happened? So what's yeah. going on in Arkansas, Diener? It was set up. It was just perfect timing. So there's been, just like everywhere else in the east, um, there are a lot of people, and being right there next to Oklahoma and Texas and some of the biggest quail Kansas, states in the world. We're right next door, so there's a lot of landowners and producers and hunters in Arkansas that really want our quail back. Um, you know, we want to do this work. They want it. it. They're really passionate about it. NRCS knows that. They've been doing wildlife work down there for years. Game and Fish started kicking off their initiatives um, because they could feel that. You know, they could sense that built-up pressure that people really wanted to do this. And this Working Lands for Wildlife Quail Initiative kicked it all off for us down there. That that got NRCS and Game and Fish talking. That's what allowed us to get the positions on that we have there, working specifically for that program to push this initiative to try to to try to make this work. Um, you know, like every other state, they've been trying to do quail work for a long time, and it's just hard on a statewide level. Or when you, you know, we need more boots on the ground everywhere to try to do this, and we're doing it in focal areas too. You know, and our folks are specifically put within certain focal landscapes where we think they'll be the most successful to do this work. Um, and it's been a huge hit. Uh, the chapters uh, are responding very well. Mm -hmm. So the chapters we had on the ground, there were four on the ground in 2017 when I moved down there. Uh, they're all doing much better. Um, now that they've, you know, they, they feel a sense of purpose again. They have biologists there now, like we can, we can do this. Um, we've grown. We've got three more chapters since we moved down there. We've got, got three more in the last three or four more in the pipeline. <laughs> so you guys have started th three in five months. Oh yeah, yeah. By the end that's of twenty twenty, I'd love to have twenty chapters, and I don't think that's crazy. Really, I don't think that's so crazy at all. If folks are listening, um, where are the chapters currently in the state? What what are the towns? So the the first chapter was in Russellville. Um, the next chapter started the next day up in Jonesboro. And then we had Little Rock and Harrison. Okay, so we've got four right now. So that was the original four, okay. and then and then we added uh, one out in uh, Brinkley, one in Star City, and the last the last one was in Fayetteville. Okay, so we're up to seven right now. That's right. Where where's the next couple towns in Arkansas that you're hoping? listeners are you know tuning in and they want to they, they might want to start a chapter so we've been getting phone calls and emails already from people in heber springs so cleburne county um arkadelphia which you know it's no big surprise a lot of these new chapters are popping up where we have biologists based and there's no chapters currently uh fort smith is a big possibility and that's no we, surprise to us in the state of arkansas but that's right outside of one of the premier quail habitats right. we have left in the state and at one time there was a chapter in fort smith i i believe i wrote a press release about them yep. you know okay a decade ago sure right. that's before i was even here yeah. so. <laughs> i was still in college bob <coughs> Ouch, man. But, wow what's the next arkansas on the map tim where, you know, where's, you know, where's this going to explode as, next as we build these teams a uh, biologist around the quail range um like he said uh our success and our story gets out and these chapters start to 
start to come out of the woodwork. And, um, you know, since the first of the year, we've grown our Quail Forever chapter base by almost 10% hmm. in five months. We've, we've started over 15 new chapters. They've been in Arkansas, Georgia, Illinois, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Texas. And <laughs> our next Arkansas, right now, if I was a, you know, pointed a map, it would probably be Georgia. Okay. You know, we just yeah. put Jess and an incredible team on down there. We got her as the program lead for Working Lands. We put on three biologists and a precision ag specialist. Yeah. And it's, it's a, it, it feels like Arkansas did a couple years ago where we're, we're really – we're really building an army down there for quail, and it's gonna it's gonna take off. And, and our new precision ag specialist, his name is Chaz, yep, that's right? Chaz Which I would have expected he'd live in Jersey, not yeah. you know Georgia <laughs> with the name Chaz, right? Is that yeah. right? Isn't that an East Coast name? Yeah, it's Charles. <laughs> it's Char- yeah, Chaz. That's right. <laughs> but well, you know that was a great partnership down there. A new partnership we formed with uh, Cotton Incorporated. Mm-hmm. Um, got to know them, and they wanted to do something great for the landscape. Because, I don't know, sometimes cotton farmers don't get the best rap, you know, on the way they treat yep. the land. And and they said, hey, we're, we're a good company. We want to be a good partner. and We want to do something great. And teamed up with them um, for funding with the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation grant and uh, put Chaz on the ground. And yeah, and um, his, his phone's ringing off the hook. It's off the hook. He's sending me the emails. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. There's a there's huge good, interest. Good really a lot of, lot oh, of yeah. demand for He's doing busy. quail habitat around cotton fields. Yeah, because, I mean, those guys are hunters, too. Mm-hmm. You know, they like to hear the whistle just as much as, you know, anybody else. And, you know, just to be able to make some small changes on their operation, you know, can make all the difference for those birds, you know. So – Folks are listening. They want to know about getting involved in Arkansas. Throw out your contact info, Ryan. Yeah, so you can get a hold of me, um, my email. Uh, and this is, can all be found on our, you know, quailforever.org website, too, if you search for our find a biologist or find a rep. Um, but my emails are diener, D-I-E-N-E-R, at quailforever.org. And just address it, diener. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Just, yeah. Diener, comma, and then say whatever you want to say. To <laughs> um, or you can actually reach out to me. My my cell phone number is 636-399-8733. And I'm happy to have a chat with anybody who's interested in quail and, and doing good work out on the landscape. And, you know, I'll, I'll probably pass you along eventually to John Wallace, who's our rep down there, and he's going to treat you right, and we'll get you off the ground and get you going. And if folks want to learn about what's happening, um, you know, with all the states that you're working on yeah. with Jess, how, how do folks reach you? Uh, you can get me at jmcguire at quailforever.org or, uh, you know, 617-686-3012. And, you know, like Ryan, uh, we've got a great rep, uh, Kenny, down there that, you know, is he is going crazy setting up <laughs> chapters and <laughs> getting things rolling you know like tim said we we've, we've got a great team and we're all working together and we're excited everybody's excited and it's and going tim if folks you yeah. know all over the <coughs> darn country want right. to learn more about anybody that wants <laughs> to help us grow and do more of what we're doing you can hop on quailforever.org click on my link because my last name's a mess and it's a mile long it's not that hard. Out, i mean it's i'll i'll say it bear with me my email address is T-C-A-U-G-H-R-A-N at quailforever.org. Or you can give me a call on my cell phone at 618-791-3909. Be happy to talk to you and, and help this place grow and keep moving in the right direction for quail. So as you guys look towards the future, what are your oh, kind of concluding thoughts on where you think um, 
you know the quail world's going over the next couple of years oh. what's got you excited i uh you know we were just in washington dc on capitol hill went there and met with some agency leaders and had a phenomenal meeting with the u.s forest service and when i look at a map and i try to figure out how we can do large-scale projects landscape level stuff which is what quail need right now as quickly as possible to send the population trend the other way make it go up um, the forest service has a lot a lot of land and geography to offer hmm. for possibility of projects we just talked with them um, we recently you know, uh, completed a master stewardship agreement a master challenge cost share agreement and we're looking to, to partner better with them and start doing large-scale projects with them and it excites me and and i think we have a, a lot of work we can do there yeah forest service that's absolutely coast to coast right yeah, there. i cut my mm. teeth with them as an intern straight out of college back in 1999 mm. the land between the lakes and uh just i don't it excites me there's a lot of opportunity there and and uh, i want to go after it yeah tim's absolutely right people forget about the forest service in the east but both of the national forests in arkansas have some of the better habitat work that you can see in the state yeah. uh, especially for pine savanna oak woodland mm. restoration um, and some pretty decent quail numbers that people won't admit or even try to go out and find and know that they're there yeah and I'll, I'll add to that i was just at Conecca last week which is one of my they favorite make great sausage too but <laughs> i've heard <laughs> I've, sausage. Yeah, i've never oh, never that tried stuff. that but you know it's one of my it's favorite good. places and you know as we got out of our trucks we just heard the quail's going crazy and you know like tim said and ryan you know there's great opportunity there and we're working on the Oconee in georgia so yeah it's yeah. so lots going on we, we signed an mou with the national park service at the north american wildlife conference last year and um me and south region director chris mcleland been working with them to identify sites to do projects and you know when i think about them i think uh the na national parks like yellowstone and stuff like that but they actually identified over 60 different areas they had parcels of land where they allow public hunting hmm. where we can do habitat projects so we're jumping all in with them too to try to take a you know seize that opportunity and put and there's all the species of quail probably in those national yeah they, i mean they have them from one side of the country to the yeah. other you know so uh yeah i've been working with their ecologist jordan spock and more great stuff to come there well jessica tim deaner <laughs> Thanks very much for uh, joining uh, and talking about the rise of quail forever in the southeast on this episode of On the Wing. Really appreciate you guys joining us. Thank Thanks, you. Bob. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, folks. Thank you very much for listening to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing podcast. We invite you to become a member of Quail Forever. We need your membership. So your membership and those dollars that help us do our habitat mission and put more Tremendous biologists like Jess McGuire, Tim Corrin, Ryan Diener on the ground to do habitat for quail. And when you do habitat for quail, just remember, you're helping the gopher tortoise too. Yes. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast, and we will see you down the road.